0: Hi, everyone. Today's January 15th, 2015. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Stephanie Borgland, who is an assistant professor at the Hotchkiss Institute at the University of Calgary. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. Her uh, research combines approaches in cellular physiology, pharmacology, and behavior to define the ways in which neuropeptide signals affect uh, synaptic plasticity in the brain regions associated with motivated behaviors and addiction and then ultimately impact motivated behaviors like feeding I guess you work on mostly feeding at the moment. Right? Yeah, mostly feeding. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, around the room We've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. We've got um, Gerard. Buck-Modin. Hello. Hello. Oh, hey Gerard. We've got Matt Wanat. Yeah, hello. And Carlos Palladini. Hello. And I'm your host, Selma Karashi. So, um... So your work looks at how peptides regulate dopamine reward pathways to influence feeding and how those feeding behaviors impact back on brain circuitry to influence future feeding. Um, Can you say something about language here? So when we say feeding, um, are we talking about, you know, core hunger and satiety signals or are we talking about something more like, can you talk about the differences between feeding that's based on hunger and feeding that's based on sort of motivational like i guess the non-homeostatic feeding. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I kind of got interested in studying non-homeostatic feeding in the sense that I think with issues of obesity that's primarily the what you know the reason why we eat now is that you know we exist we exist in an environment where there's a lot of easily accessible palatable food. So we're rarely in a position where we actually go hungry anymore so i think uh that you know there's a lot of reasons that drive us to eat and a lot of those have to do with um the impact of food predicting cues and um you know the sensory properties of the food that is palatable that um you know it feels nice in our mouth and and that kind of thing that promotes you know eating and overeating I guess, as opposed to just like the homeostatic system that, you know, is entirely based on energy demand. So you have an energy deficit, you need to eat more to get enough calories to, you know, take away that energy deficit and stuff, so. Right, so okay,
0: so you work on a, a number of peptides, but can we start with, I guess, insulin? Um, so can you tell us about about your work on insulin, what it does to excitatory transmission and VTA, and, and, and how it ultimately impacts on feeding behavior, that story?
1: Yeah, so um, quite a while ago, like, uh, I think it was in 2000, um, a group in Germany published that insulin can act in the ventromedial hypothalamus to suppress feeding. So um, nobody ever really thought about um, insulin really acting in the brain to modulate food intake until this study came out from Jens Bruning's lab. And so... um, and then, so then, people got you know kind of interested in whether or not insulin can signal in other brain regions. Like it's the hypothalamus seems like an obvious part for insulin to get to because there's a leaky blood brain barrier, and so um, presumably you you know insulin would have have access to that region. Yet there's insulin res- um, receptors expressed fairly ubiquitously throughout the brain, so. Uh, you know, there's still a bit of controversy whether insulin itself is produced within the brain and that, but it's, um, but other studies mainly done by Stephen Wood's lab in Cincinnati have demonstrated that, you know, radio labeled insulin can actually cross the blood brain barrier and get into deeper parts of the brain parenchyma. So because, um, there's insulin receptors expressed in the VTA, um, on dopamine neurons and other labs have shown that it can modulate food intake and stuff. We were really interested in whether it modulated, you know, uh, hedonic aspects of food intake. And so we showed that if you put insulin directly into the VTA, that it um, suppresses a conditioned place preference for food and it um, suppressed, uh anticipatory behavior for food interestingly, that I, I didn't sort of talk about this in the talk, is that we looked um, on a progressive ratio task. So that's a uh, an operant self-administration where the animals have to make increasing or um, instrumental responses to get a food pellet. So it, the task gets harder and harder as it goes along. So the animals have to make more and more lever presses to get the reward. And we found that insulin in the VTA did not affect the actual effort the animals were willing to expend to get the food so suggesting there might be some sort of dissociation with between you know the salience of contexts or cues and stuff associated with food versus the actual effort the animal is willing to engage in to get the food at least in the vta so um so we thought that was quite interesting we were worried that maybe our reinforcer wasn't reinforcing enough so we switched to something where they press like up to like I don't know, their break point was like 150 or something crazy high, and so meaning that they work really, really, really hard for it. But insulin didn't modulate that behavior at all. So it doesn't seem, in the VTA, anyway, in our hands, it doesn't seem to modulate the effort the animals will expend to get the food, but it does modulate um, their salience, if I can use that word, to cues or contexts um, previously paired with food or associated with food. So... So that was kind of interesting. And then we um, – so then we were – because uh, glutamate and the BTA is involved in um, in uh, learning cues associated with reward or at least, you know, enhancing the efficacy of those cues associated b- with reward, we were wondering if um, if insulin modulated glutamatergic plasticity. And we found that insulin actually suppressed um, glutamatergic synaptic transmission. But not GABAergic synaptic transmission, so it seems to be quite selective to the to excitatory inputs. But we don't really know what inputs those are yet. So, so do you,
2: how, how does one distinguish between this homeostatic hunger from feeling from, good hunger?
1: <laughs> well, basically, like homeostatic hungry hunger or homeostatic food intake, just means you eat when you're hungry, so um, and you eat to balance your energy needs. Uh, hedonic food intake, or non, I should say non homeostatic, means that you're eating beyond your energy needs. Yeah, so, so you're not eating wh- because I mean you're is hungry.
2: More, more um, practically, uh, so when you're measuring progressive ratio,
1: oh, like is an animal do you know?
2: eating more food on a progressive ratio because he's more hungry or because it tastes better?
1: Yeah. So no. So the so in all, like at least in all, when you're looking at hedonic food intake, you can't food restrict the animal because then you're getting into the animal's hungry. It's got an energy deficit. Maybe he's working to make up for this energy deficit. So in all our experiments, the the animals are either on either pre-fed or on ad libitum food. So um, so that you know we presume they're not necessarily hungry before going into the yeah, task.
2: So, well, I mean. You can kind of imagine it as like a, you know, like Kub's hedonic um, homeostatic oh, set like point. Maybe the... there's a, a, a hunger homeostatic yeah. set point. So, so there's they, this... they think, and they may be full, yeah. their stomach, but they're receiving less insulin and therefore the animal just thinks it's still hungry. It's
1: still hungry, yeah. Right? And
2: therefore they're still eating due because to hunger it... issues, even though yeah. they in fact did consume the same amount of calories.
1: Yeah, so we um, we did another experiment um, that is published in EJN, where we um, sated the animals prior to feeding. So we, you know, we entrained the animals that they consume their cal- calories within four hours a day, and just so that's just so that we can look at feeding be- like when they're in a hungry state versus when they're in a sated state. And so um, then we measured, like, hourly feeding of chow. And you can see, like, in the first hour, they eat lots of chow, and then it slowly progresses until they the last hour they don't eat very much. And then we looked at if you give um, insulin when they're hungry, like, prior to that four hours, it didn't have any impact on how much insulin in the VTA, I should say, on how much they ate. But if you gave insulin after the fourth hour and before you gave them access to an, an hour access to as much high fat, sweet and high fat that they want, that will suppress that hedonic food intake. So that's how we sort of like entrainment I don't want to call that um, we can call it hungry eating, I don't want to call it homeostatic eating because it's not really homeostatic it's not really homeostatic to consume your calories only within four hours a day but um, like we know that they were hungry and stuff and it didn't seem to modulate like that hungry feeding of chow but it did modulate the hedonic feeding of high fat after they've been sated on chow so you know that might get a little bit to your question but you know it's impossible to tell without actually speaking to a rat what's really going on in there you know if they're really hungry versus not like we assume you know they have elevated and that they're sated when they have elevated insulin levels or something like that but i you know so Scott Sternson has a theory. I don't know if it's a monosynaptic projection, but there's these AGRP neurons in their GABAergic neurons in the lateral, or sorry, the nucleus of the hypothalamus, and they apparently project up to the VTA as well. And he thinks that when the animals are hungry, so these neurons are activated, that um, it puts the animals in a state of negative reinforcement. So when they're actually hungry, it's really aversive for them, and it's like a, a negative reinforcement state and stuff, and they're eating um, to make up for that. But I am, um, you know, he hasn't really tested it in a lot of reinforcement learning models and stuff like that. So I'd be interested if that, you know, he's sort of just thrown out that hypothesis and stuff, and I'd be interested if that really develops and that. But it's sort of another way of thinking, you know, maybe hunger is just a negative reinforcement state and that's why people are reading to you know, in that coup model to get rid of their negative reinforcement feeling, their anhedonic feeling or whatever. But I um yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I answered your question or not.
3: <laughs> would you speculate? Um, I mean, because you said that insulin does not affect then the progressive ratio, and insulin has effects selectively on the glutamatergic drive, that potentially the motivation to work for a food reward may be principally driven by the GABA inputs onto the dopamine neurons. And maybe that, you know, if you yeah. those, that, that may be actually driving
2: it.
1: That would be really interesting. That's totally testable, too. But that's a really interesting idea. And I. You know, I, without speculating, I have no idea, but um, that'd be pretty cool. But it could also be just like on the insulin-activated dopamine neurons, they don't project to, you know, these parts of the um, the nucleus accumbens that's involved in effort-related behavior. Maybe it's different projections, dopamine projections, like that's all conjecture too. But yeah, there could be multiple reasons, but that's an interesting idea.
4: Was there a lot of heterogeneity in the uh Uh, where insulin receptors were expressed?
1: We didn't find a lot of heterogeneity. Like, we saw that probably about 85% of cells express insulin receptors in the VTA and not just actually, like, um, interestingly, GABAergic cells also express Mm. insulin receptors too. It's just for some reason it, it, you know, insulin didn't cause any change in evoke GABA, you know, responses Mm -hmm. on dopamine neurons. So maybe, you know, that endocannabinoid signaling seems to be very um, select. You need like those synapses with CB one receptors at the presynaptic terminal close to where you have an insulin receptor that can induce endocannabinoid um, release. So, you know, but and maybe GABAergic cells aren't there, and it's been shown previously in the D, in the VTA that you know. Different there's different GABAergic inputs to mm. um, different regions of within the BTA, so it's mm. you know it's quite possible that it's quite heterogeneous that way. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I you know, in our hands, it's it's interesting because most you know most of the cells express insulin receptors okay. and stuff. But yeah, would you?
3: to comment on the, uh, so your mechanism that you have for the um, insulin um, effects on eating involve an enhancement of endocannabinoid signaling. And in some ways, that sort of runs counter to sort of you know the anecdotal account of you know the the munchies or something. You know, when yeah. individuals who you know smoke pot, they you know increase their appetite. <laughs> and so yeah. I was just wondering, how does that? I then... don't
2: think it's anecdotal. <laughs> no, tell us
0: about the mechanism first, because that was
1: Yeah, okay. First. So so to back up a little bit and say about the mechanism, so what we found is that you get. Um, so after you have insulin receptor activation, you get increase in PI three kinase signaling and mTOR signaling, and somehow that leads to an increase in endocannabinoid synthesis. So I know this because you can use intracellular inhibitors, bath applied inhibitors of endocannabinoid synthesis, such as this uh, DAGL inhibitor, and then um, and we also know this that you can occlude the response with cannabinoid agonists, or you can block the response with the cannabinoid receptor antagonists. So. We have a bunch of evidence published in that paper suggesting that it's an endocannabinoid media effect. So you get increased in in endocannabinoid synthesis and dopamine neurons that acts retrogradely at glutamatergic presynaptic terminals on CB1 receptors to inhibit glutamate release. So it's sort of a common mechanism of long-term depression within other brain regions and and the VTA as well. Endocannabinoid, LTD has been demonstrated in the VTA quite a while ago. But uh, it's never really been demonstrated that a uh, tyrosine kinase receptor like insulin receptors could actually promote endocannabinoid synthesis in the same way as MGOR receptors can. So, so that was kind of another interesting thing about that finding. But to get to your question, right, you, you know, because that's often asked is like, but you get the suppression of feeding when you have this endocannabinoid response. But, you know, if you, you know, with the pot munchies and with if you actually whack in cannabinoid uh, Agonist in the VTA, like THC or something in the VTA, you can promote feeding. And so, one of the one of the reasons why that is is that there's cannabinoid receptors both on GABAergic terminals as well as on glutamatergic terminals. So, if you're going to like marinate that region in cannabinoids, uh, presumably the bigger effect will be on the GABAergic neurons that will disinhibit dopamine neurons and increase dopaminergic firing. And they've been shown, like Joe Tier has demonstrated. This and stuff like that—that it's—you um, get a, you know, suppression of GABA release, and then you get uh, an increase in, in dopaminergic firing, an increase in dopamine release, and that kind of thing, which is probably what's driving feeding when you just put in cannabinoids into the VTA. But our response is very synapse selective, so it's only acting at um, glutamatergic terminals and that kind of thing so inhibiting that glutamatergic input and it's an interesting question why it's so specific and if you think about you know endocannabinoids they're very lipophilic and stuff so it's not something that you know when it's being released retrograde to the cell that's going to volume transmit throughout because it's you know very lipophilic hydrophobic so it's it's, it's not going to it's going to it has to hit another membrane so whatever that you know, you know, whatever that synaptic mechanism is, it's, it's got to be very closely associated so that, it, you know, it uh, targets a very, like, limited region and stuff like that because so, I don't think endocannabinoids can volume transmit, like, unlike, you know, other neuromodulators and stuff. So,
4: so I mean, so if you think about the expression of insulin receptor potentially not being that selective throughout the cell, is it possible maybe there's actually an input that's actually directly secreting insulin onto these cells?
1: Well, so that's you know that's a question of mine as well. Like arguably, you know, could we be stimulating insulin release from somewhere? Does right. that you know could it be endogenous insulin that's being triggered by maybe a change in glucose concentration mm. somewhere else? Like, uh, so we you know we don't know. We assume it's peripheral because when we increase peripheral insulin that we can include the response, but perhaps that increasing peripheral insulin is actually changing brain glucose concentration that's Mm. then causing this response or causing insulin secretion or something. So I don't know, a colleague of mine has these mice and so in humans, there's only one gene for insulin, but in mice there's two, there's this INS1 and INS2. Mm. And so INS1 is expressed peripherally and ins two is expressed in the brain and peripherally so he's got um ins two mice, which um and he's shown that in there's uh, in mrna for insulin in the brain and it really high levels in the hippocampus surprisingly hmm. like relatively moderate levels in the hypothalamus but um in bits in the cortex but it seems like the highest in the hippocampus and it's possible that there's like a Hippocampal projection that's mm. insulin and so that we're we're going to try and drive that input using channelrhodopsin or something like that and see if we can get Responses that are modulated with the insulin receptor antagonist, but mm. that's you know, we haven't done that yet So,
0: so you've always you you've also done some work that shows that peptides modulate um, behaviors um, produced by drugs of abuse or, or can affect the tone of of hijack systems, so can you just some, kind of introduce us to that idea and whether these potentially therapeutic avenues yeah. for drugs of abuse?
1: So what? Um, so the work you're talking about is we were looking at this neuropeptide called orexin, or it's also called hypocretin, and it's um, produced solely in these cells in the perifornical area and the lateral hypothalamus, of, um, and um, these neurons project widely throughout the brain, but they make a very strong passant projection through the VTA. So within the VTA, there's a lot of, um, orexin receptors. And, um, I, you know, we showed originally that, um, orexin itself can enhance synaptic, effic- synaptic efficacy by increasing, um, NMDA mediated responses. Um, and we also showed that if you block orexin signaling, you can block sensitization to cocaine. And this, um, so a lot of other labs now have demonstrated that you can inhibit q induced reinstatement to drug seeking for um, heroin and um, ethanol and um, in cocaine. So it seems pretty broad and stuff. So, so and we showed that if you inhibit the orexin signaling, you can block cocaine-induced plasticity in that in that paper, suggesting that maybe orexin signaling is gating some kind of drug-induced plasticity. So now we're kind of looking at, like, is this something common with all drugs of abuse and what is the mechanism by which that happens? And we actually find that if you apply the antagonist within the VTI, um, it blocks morphine-induced plasticity at glutamatergic synapses. And what it's actually doing is shifting the excitatory to inhibitory balance on those dopamine cells, so it's like toning, to, um, so if you, um, so rexin signaling is toning down the GABAergic input and promoting the glutamatergic input, really gating that, um, synaptic efficacy. Affic- affic- so those dopamine neurons are more, I don't know, I don't want to say excitable because we didn't really record it in current clamp, like the excitability of the cell, but they're more, um, excitatory driven, I guess. Um, so we show that that effect is mediated actually within the VTA. So you can block that by putting the antagonist directly in the VTA. So it's kind of, I don't know, that paper's in revision right now, so hopefully it'll be published soon. But um, it's kind of interesting that it seems to, like, not only be modulating cocaine induced plasticity, but also morphine, and we're going to test it with other drugs and stuff like that too now. But so as far as therapeutic development, it's it's actually an interesting – drug story because so the peptides were discovered um in nineteen ninety eight. So it was published I don't know I can't remember what month, but it was published like one month by this group in San Diego led by Luis la Chia. And then um it was published about a month later led by this group um uh, Sakurai from Japan. And so Sakurai named it a and Luis la Chia named it hypocretin, named after like a it's a secretin type or it's an incretin type Peptide or something like that, or had similar structure to secretin or incretin or whatever, and so um, and it's from the hypothalamus, so he called it hypocretin. But it's, so anyway, so you know, in the literature you'll see it's like named both ways. But so they discovered it in 1998, and of course, like there was like in the mid 2000s, there was like this real flood of studies on on orexin signaling, and it's involved in addiction, it's involved in sleep-wake. Because if you target selectively these orexin-2 receptors, there's orexin-1 and orexin-2 receptors, which are both GPCRs in, you know, throughout the brain. But they seem to be involved in maintenance of uh, wakefulness. And uh, so if you... So now um, there's been several drug companies that have targeted dual um, orexin-1 and orexin-2 antagonists. And just this January... um, uh, this drug called Suvarexant by Mark has been released to market. It's got FDA approval now. It's You can get it from your doctor starting this month and stuff. So it's kind of the most, like, the quickest translation story as far as developing a drug from a known, uh, a discovered target and stuff like that that is kind of interesting. So they are super happy because it's got piles of patent life on it. But now, you know, the next question for them is, like, you know, this. so this has been... Um, marketed as a sleep aid for, um, you know, people with uh, primary insomnia and stuff. But what's and, and what's interesting about that drug, sorry, I'm like rambling a little bit, but what's interesting about that drug is that it's, um, it's not like a benzodiazepine where you actually have the sensation of being sedated, like you feel a bit woozy on benzodiazepines. This actually like mimics your natural sleep. So you, um, and it doesn't alter any of your I forget what they call it, but it doesn't alter any, you know, it doesn't like inhibit run sleep. It doesn't alter any of those other sort of sleep um, sleep wave cycles. And so it's very much like natural sleep. So I'm curious how well it'll do because, you know, with alcohol or benzodiazepines, you feel drowsy and you feel like, and a lot of people who are insomniacs don't, Like, unless they have that on board, they don't know it's time to sleep, like, because they never feel naturally sleep drowsy. They, You know, one of the treatments for insomnia is actually sleep restricting them until they get that feeling of tiredness so that they can learn what that is and pass out. So now, I don't know. So I'm curious because this drug won't make you feel drowsy. Like, it'll just, you know put you to sleep. It will make you feel woozy or whatever. So people might not, I'm curious if people will like it because they don't, you know, have that known association (laughs) with sleeping. So it might be better for people that have jet lag or something like that, that need to adapt really fast. I don't know, but it'll be interesting to see how that works. But, and also in, I don't know, I don't think they're allowed to market it to alcoholics, but you know, benzodiazepines are contraindicated in alcoholics. So this one might work because that's one of the biggest, um, problems with uh maintenance of abstinence is that they have a lot of insomnia and so you know and as soon as you go sleep deprived then you lose clinical control and then they relapse and stuff like that so it's hard to so it'll be interesting if they can use this drug and uh you know and benzodiazepine contraindicated patients to see if it's um you know if you can keep them on track by keeping them you know, rested or whatever and in control. And then, uh, but that's, you know, we'll see, you know, we'll see that it's in the post-marketing phase now. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens with that. But as far as it being specifically targeted, like develop a rexin-1 receptor antagonist for treatment of addiction relapse or like prevention of relapse and stuff, I don't know any drug companies that are doing that, but I don't know any drug companies that are actually... Saying that we're making addiction cures and stuff like that, unless it's really small firm, because it doesn't, you know, you're probably more closer to the addiction field than I am these days. But it doesn't really seem like that's a big, you know, thing to invest a whole bunch of money in. But I don't know, you know, like it's, it's certainly a lot of people are addicted. But.
3: Like you're something when you can treat it? <laughs>
1: yeah,
5: right. Yeah, so I have a question about sort of what what's happened to people's thinking about dopamine cells. So, in the original Wolfram Schultz work, which was basically about substantia nigra, dopamine cells, not about BTA ones, the cells were uh, not really involved at all in drive, or in satiety, or in craving, or any of that kind of stuff. In that scheme, they were just um, uh, trying to accurately predict when a rewarding thing was going to come. Yeah. And there was no indication from any of that stuff. And Wolfram certainly didn't push any kind of idea that that drives come yeah. from the substantial. order, no, drives, as everybody knew then, come from the hypothalamus. Yeah. And so, uh, but as we look at the dopamine cell literature, and especially in the BTA literature, it really seems like it's drifting in the direction of of saying that dopamine cell is, its activity represents drive or, and in your work as well. So is that, is that what's happening? Is that real?
1: Well, I don't know. So you you should probably answer this question because it's like, you know, you're more the dopamine person than I am. But the, um, my take on it is that, you know, dopamine is released into a lot of different brain regions and stuff and modulation of different, of different, terminals or dopamine in different terminals is going to do different things right like dopamine in the prefrontal cortex is involved in short-term memory and attention and that kind of thing whereas dopamine in the Cummins seems to be more involved in if you change dopamine tone in there you seem to be uh changing effort so a lot of that effort-based stuff like motivation like sal is has been done by john salomon in connecticut that's shown that if you inhibit dopamine or modulate dopamine tone in those regions you can make the animals work harder or less hard but um i you know like so my think, my idea is that you know a lot of these different behaviors are different target dependent effects and it depends where you you know what projections that you're really targeting but um i don't know like the whole i guess i can comment on it so in the Late sixties and early seventies, there's sort of this early literature of dopamine involved in um, food intake, and it's kind of like, so I think they they showed that animals don't eat if you um, if you give them uh, six hydroxy dopamine lesions, lesions and stuff like that, and then um, and then if you electrically stimulated the VTA, you could drive feeding and stuff like that but it wasn't then in the early 2000s or 99 2000 richard palmer developed those dopamine deficient mice and so basically he like um genetically ablated all the dopamine neurons but you could um you know you could give the animals dopamine but he said if you don't give the animals dopamine that they'll they'll just die and the primary reason why they die is they're just completely apathetic like they you could you could trigger them to eat or drink like put them in water they'll drink or you could you know startle them and put them on top of their food and and then they they're physically capable of chewing and adjusting but they just don't they seem like they're unmotivated and so interestingly he tried to restore dopamine in all these different brain regions and the place where he was able to re- where he restored dopamine that drove food intake was actually in the dorsal striatum so not what we think about it in a brain region that's involved in motivated behavior but um you know that that work is you know so that sort of showed yes dopamine is required for eating and he thought it was involved in not necessarily effort but probably salience of you know food cues or that that was driving the behavior but you know i don't know other people you know have looked Maybe using, actually measuring dopamine concentrations in vivo while the animal is behaving and stuff, and you can probably comment on that better than now.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a, you can. Sp- a lot of microdialysis studies I've looked at in the um, ventral I'm looking at and the, the shell is going to be sort of really responsive to sort of a new novel stimulus and, you know, in the core it's going to be a more sustained response. And so, you know, even in, you know, some brain regions that are receiving, you know, VTA input, you have sort of a differential profile of dopamine response to sort of a feeding related cues and actual food consumption. And so. Uh, to answer your question, Charlie, yes. I think that is probably where the field is going. And a lot of people, I know Stefan Lamel has done some very uh, um, elegant studies sort of looking at different afferent inputs of dopamine neurons and where they go and their outputs and how that can elicit sort of different behaviors. So uh, I think, yes, it's, it's more complicated Sometimes than we originally thought.
2: Yeah, well, the Lisa Rothlove actually did optogenetic activation of VTA dopamine neurons and actually drove um, approach behavior toward... I guess toward a lever for, for something. Um, so it seemed that they were able to drive behavior by activating dopamine cells. Yeah. In, in a phasic uh, yeah, like yeah, the interesting thing was I did it in a phasic firing pattern and yeah. then they stimulated the same cells in a more um, yeah, a pacemaker fine. type pattern and they did not induce any behavior.
3: They did, yeah. yeah. That was a CPP study but uh, Linda Wilbrick also yeah, right. with uh, um, collaborating with um, uh, the DSARTH lab and Anto as well. Um, she had demonstrated, I think, that you can actually sort of shift their behavior um, by stimulating in sort of like very temporally segregated, you know, time, so you can really change their behavior in sort of very profound ways, Um, but depending on when you sort of stimulate. So it's not just a question of dopamine does this. The question is when does, are you stimulating the dopamine system in relation to everything else that's going on? And then I think that sort of gets at a, a larger answer of what's dopamine doing.
1: Yeah, so it have been different things
5: <laughs> as an answer.
2: <laughs> but it still does reward prediction error. Yes. Yeah.
5: yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's the only thing that it does that is part of traditional learning theory. Right. Because yeah. all the rest of those things that you've talked about are observations that people have not tried to place into that framework of learning theory. Right. And so the idea of drive doesn't enter into that because that is some kind of ancient learning theory idea. And so none of those experiments were really addressing drive because they say, what's drive? Right? That's something from generations ago.
2: That's something from neuroethology.
5: Yeah.
2: <laughs> Which is from generations ago.
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> so the insulin receptors are also in SNC or neuro, uh, they're actually really restricted to VTA?
1: Um, when we stain, yeah, it seems like it, there's. it's more, like it's definitely more medial than lateral when you look in a horizontal slice. Yeah. So, uh, but there are some in the, in like, there are some in the substantia nigra. So I don't want to say that it's like completely VTA, but, hmm. um, yeah, there are some in the substantia nigra too. Cause
4: there's like, there was a study at, was it like 06, I think, where they were looking at ablating STN and it seemed to like actually change. The, the drive of the rats for either going for more food or cocaine.
1: Oh, interesting. And yeah.
4: subthalamic nucleus is essentially an SNC projection. Yeah. Right? It projects only to SNC. And so Alyssa yeah. um, has an N of one uh, animal where, at least on one
3: day, uh, okay. the CNO um, injection um, actually increased the, the dopamine response in the ventral striatum. And the animal was working more for food. Now, I mean, we're talking N of 1, and we're trying to bounce back and forth and yeah. stuff like that. So we also don't have histology to know if it was legit. But actually, yeah. suggests that in the, whether it is monosynaptic, polysynaptic, or whatever, yeah. we, are, we are observing a larger dopamine response in the ventral striatum, in the core, hopefully, maybe the shell. But point is, it's not the dorsal striatum. Yeah. Um, when With CNO um, hitting the HM4-D, you know, inhibitory mm. uh, dread that's in the STN.
4: It's interesting because I think, I think, um, I mean, based on like the tracing study of the virus, it really suggests that STN doesn't really have a big projection to be. No, it doesn't. So that's why it's sort of like I mean, there, a shape, But there is thought that there's this some of these SNc cells are actually eventually projecting, right? So maybe it's in these like special
5: cells. What SNC cells are projecting that?
4: There's some, there's some more recent stuff I've been seeing where it seemed as if there was I forget how they did the study. Um, I think maybe it was a retrograde label into accumbens. They could see some some. S and C cells, actually, some dopamine cells actually... Oh, I see. That's what you mean. Ventral. Ventral. Yeah, I just meant ventral stridum. Ventral like stridum. Ventral to dorsal striatum. Yeah, ventral oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's all I meant. Um, so, the rule of S and C only going to dorsal striatum is maybe not as cut and dry as maybe one thinks. Charlie, to get the question you were asking there,
3: uh, we've got some data now which is sort of saying that dopamine is sort of doing both. And really the, the effect of dopamine on behavior is very cue and context dependent. So like in our Pavlovian task, which I've shown that stuff before, there's really, after extended training, we get a clear dopamine response that's encoding the, the rate of reward to the two different cues, but there's no differential behavior between there. But when we fuck up the task in some w- manner, and we see a change of dopamine release selectively to one of those cues that's when we start to see a change in behavior. So it's actually the, the domain system, and I think it's kind of cool, is maybe representing these cues totally independently. So you've got circle equals large reward, triangle equals small reward in the monkey world. The domain res- system is going to be responding to that, but it's, it's actually computing those or how it's actually in, you know, interpreting that is that totally independent processes. And so when you get a change of behavior, it isn't actually a comparison between the two, but it's when you change sort of the value of one of those versus the other. So it's doing a reporting as well as driving behavior when shit changes, is at least my working theory now. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers your question or-
5: Well, I don't really know what either one of those two things are, (laughs) right? I mean, driving behavior is a pretty vague idea for me. Mm -hmm. And reporting Sensory. means sensory function. Reporting.
3: No, it's, just inco- it's encoding some aspect. I mean, in the sense that, like, you look at, you know, reward prediction error, that's, I mean, it's encoding a reward prediction error. I mean, I, I, uh-huh. so, like, I mean, what the dopamine system does when I say, you know, sort of reporting, I'd say, you know, encoding some arbitrary thing that we are putting upon it, you know, uh-huh. which is reward prediction error is something that we are sort of observing in the environment and then saying, oh, look, dopamine systems. Uh-huh. But... And as far as drive, you get rid of dopamine, you don't have behavior. But yes, it is a nebulous Yeah, but term. you
5: get rid of eyes, you don't have visually guided behavior. I mean, that's exactly. not very <laughs> helpful at all. No, it isn't. I mean, there's all studies about 6-hydroxy don't mean the animals become adypsic and aphasic and so on, don't mean that those...
3: It's more interesting yes, when so a behavior per- persevered 100%. in... Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it, mean that.
5: ...it could mean that they, the animals can't recognize the cues, that well, they see that, but they don't mean. know it means food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, and so at that point they might be hungry and saying, geez, I wish I had some purina lab towel. I don't <laughs> see any purina lab around <laughs> here, right? So uh, that, it, it, it's very hard to... Well,
3: that's why a lot of those yeah. studies, and I think Richard Palmer did a lot of those things where like they always, anytime they had sort of like A dumb animal they put them in some other task like and so like look they can learn something you know they they can't do a reversal learning but hey they can do a spatial learning task like in a morris butter maze so again that doesn't say that that they're dumb in that specific task but at least takes away one possibility it says they are capable of learning something even though it may be involving different neurotransmitter you know
4: neural systems Mm -hmm. all
0: right I think that's perfect timing. Um, all right, thanks, Stephanie, for being with us. This thanks. has been Neuroscientist Talk Show.